lightly, entitled Sins Carried Away. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here on the Day of Atonement. Uh, so as was mentioned kind of in the prayer, we, we might be a little weaker today, but one thing we know is that our God is strong. And so we have a very powerful God, and, and through his strength, uh, he will get us through this day, and he'll get us through the rest of this year, and the feast, of course, and I encourage all of us when we on this day to really think about in our weakness the strength that God has in pulling us through. Not just on this day, but as a metaphor as how he pulls us through in our life, especially on times and in times when we are weak. So as was mentioned, the title of this short sermonette is Sins Carried Away. And the text that inspired me uh, was actually in the Old Testament, the, the book of Micah. I haven't preached a lot out of Micah before, but many of us have heard sermons on the book of Micah, but we're going to go to the last chapter of Micah, which is chapter 7, just to give you some context, some background. Micah was a prophet that was ministering somewhere around 750 B.C. to 700 B.C., and he was ministering to the kingdom of Judah in the south during the reigns of King Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all of, of which, of course, are kings of Judah. So he witnessed a lot of different kings coming through there. And he even witnessed the fall of the Assyrian Empire, to the, or not the fall of the Assyrians, but the invasion of the Assyrians, of the northern uh, tribes of Israel. And he also witnessed the invasion of some of Judah's territory. And so some quick facts about this book, because I think it kind of is important before we read the text we're going to read, just to look at some of the things that Micah emphasizes. Number one was idolatry. Although Judah had not slipped into the idolatrous nature like the northern tribes of Israel, he was living during a time where Judah was starting to slip into idolatry themselves. And they were on the verge, just a few years later, of course, of going into captivity. Of course, we know that would happen by the Babylonians. Social injustice. That's one of the focuses of Micah's uh, prof, uh, you know, prophetic ministry. In fact, many of us have read that famous passage in Micah 6-8 where it's that question, you know, what does God require of you? And one of the things that he says in Micah 6 uh, verse 8, walk to, but to walk justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Another thing that he focuses on, of course, is the coming of the Messiah. In fact, in the New Testament, when we read Jesus being born, King Herod, when he hears about these wise men coming and he wanting to know where you know uh, the Messiah was essentially, where the king of the Jews were, he summoned all of the scribes or some of the top experts in the law to figure out exactly where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they go to the book of Micah to determine where that was to be. In fact, we see Matthew cite Ma Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But one of the biggest themes of Micah's book, when we read it, his ministry, was the incomparability of God. That God was like none other. In fact, his name is actually a name that means, who is like Yahweh. And so when we read the text that we read, we see 
him bring this theme out. In Micah 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Does, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now this passage, or these few passages, have several ideas in them. Number one, which is that question he asked, who is like anyone? Who, what God is there that's like you, God? Is the question essentially he's asking. God is incomparable. He's beyond comparison. He's unmatchable. But despite our transgressions and our continual rejection of him, he has mercy. And we don't see that when we read other religions of the day. This was very unique in this time period. Not only does he have mercy, but the text, if you were to read the New English translation, the Net Bible, it reads the last part of verse 18, but delights in showing loyal love. He delights in having mercy for us. And in his mercy, compassion, and steadfast love for us, he casts, as Micah tells us, our sins far away to the very depths of the sea, which was an analogy to what many of them would, rec would, would refer to as the abyss during this time. And he even talks about sin and our iniquities as like it was an enemy that he himself, God himself, was defeating. And we know that's exactly what has taken place. That we haven't been able to defeat our sins, but it was God intervening in our life and human history to take it upon himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, the centerpiece of all things, to defeat this enemy, that sin, and the consequence that comes with it, the consequence of death. I want to go with this in mind, this idea of God's loyal love and compassion and mercy towards us, to a very popular passage in the New Testament, Philippians, the second chapter. Let's just turn over there real quick. Many of us have read this many times, but as I was studying Micah, and obviously this is a short sermonette, and I was trying to think of ways that, you know, different passages that we could go to that really shows this compassion that God has. And it's endless, obviously. We could go to so many different parts of the scripture, but I came to Philippians, the second chapter, and verse 5, which we've all read many times, where we're told by Paul, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, this string of passages, it'll actually go on. It talks about what he did, but it also talks about what happened afterwards, his exaltation that transpired, of course, after he subdued death, after he emptied himself. But there's a few insightful things that I just want to point out 
in this passage that in review. Number one was the very state it shows that Jesus was in. That's very important to understand this passage. The very form of God. In fact, the New uh, American Standard Translation says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means a thing to stay a hold of, to keep a hold of. But in mercy, of course, in his compassion for us, he willingly looked at our need and looked at us and came for us and took on human flesh and blood. The correct rendering of what the language is saying is that he emptied himself. Christ, who lived in the form of God in heaven, gave up that eternal realm and entered into our realm on our behalf. It's easy sometimes to think about that. We've heard about that for so long. But just the ramifications that Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, with God the Father, in heaven, emptied himself. And was found in the likeness of men for me and you. He became flesh, which meant he subjected himself to all the ordinary needs of humanity. Food, air, water, subject to pain, mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain, exhaustion, and of course, temptation. As we see in the scriptures. This shows how much that God the Father... And him, Jesus Christ, his son, treasured us the compassion and mercy that he had for me and you. In proving this love, he didn't just stop in entering into our realm and subjecting himself to this, but he subjected himself to one of the most agonizing and inhumane ways that an individual could be put to death or die during this point in human history. Knowing this, I think all of us can relate to Micah here and ask that same question, who is like our God? Who is like our high priest? Who is like our Christ? We are, of course, today following the Day of Atonement. We know the commands were to afflict our souls, were to fast, abstain from food and water, abstain from laboring or working, but on this day, I also want, us to, want to encourage us to reflect on the mercy that God the Father and His Son has shown to all of us. In their mercy, in their compassion, in their steadfast love for us, they have taken away the sins, our iniquities, and removed them. And in doing so, they have removed the enmity that existed between us and God which has paved a way, and I mentioned this in the sermon I just gave a few days ago, paved the way for reconciliation to occur between us and God. Most of us know that on this day also that there is quite the complex ritual that's presented to us in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, and we have this story on this day of this Ritual that was to take place on the Day of Atonement with these two goats. And I'm not going to get into the meaning of those two goats or you know, which goat represents what, obviously, for the sake of time. And I'll let maybe Steve do that if he's prepared that. But we know that throughout history, up into this present day, many people 
have debated and discussed exactly the meaning of this ritual. You have one goat that's selected, or well, you have two goats that are selected, one that's chosen to be slaughtered, and one that's chosen for the sins of the world, or the sins of the, the people, Israel that, that is, to be placed on that goat and led away. I'm not going to get in that discussion as I mentioned, but one thing I think we know is for sure. In this ritual, we do see the foreshadowing of something that truly does take place. Something that Micah declared, that we have a God and a Savior like none other, who for the love of us and for the love of this world, made a way for our sins to be taken away and thrown in the depths of the sea to be completely removed. It's a wonderful thing. As we continue this day and we hear another message, and this day ends, and tomorrow comes, and then the Feast of Tabernacles comes here in just a few days, I want to encourage us as we reflect on these things, the meaning behind this day, which is very many, but specifically from this message, I want to encourage all of us as we reflect on the mercy and compassion that God displayed to us through his son, Jesus Christ, let's live that out in our own lives among our fellow men. Let the world see through our actions, through our words, through our dispositions, that mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ and God the Father living through us as we go beyond this day, the Feast of Tabernacles, and beyond.